Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Law in the Family podcast of the Family Law section of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. I'm Anthony Hoover uh, with my co-host here, Aaron Weems. And today uh, we have Tracy Updike. She is a bankruptcy attorney at the uh, Harrisburg firm. I know you you cover just more than just Harrisburg um, of Medi Evans and Woodside. Uh, Tracy, welcome. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Tracy, you're, you're speaking to a lot of family law attorneys um, as well as, you know, other individuals who, who might have domestic issues. Let's let's just get right right down into it to start talking about some of the issues that that family law cases interact with in, in bankruptcy. What do you think is a great place to start talking about that? Well, I think probably the best place to start is just the whole idea of don't shut down when you hear the word bankruptcy. I know a lot of family law practitioners hate the idea of bankruptcy. I know a lot of bankruptcy practitioners hate the idea of family law, but you really have to work together uh, to come up with a plan to make sure that everybody's interests are protected. So first of all, don't shut down. You call up your your friendly neighborhood bankruptcy attorney and, and just chat. You know, we're always open to just have a chat. We don't have to get right into a case, figure out what's best for people. And I guess how this comes about, how generally people know that there's now a bankruptcy at issue is typically when they get notice of the filing and notification that some kind of action is stayed. So I, I think that's typically where we start where we get some notification that something may have to be done. And even before anything happens or for, before anything's done, if a family law attorney is meeting with a client for the very first time, that client, you know, either verbally discusses what their assets and debts are or, you know, brings a, a spreadsheet or a personal financial statement. And we as a family law attorney look at it and think, wow, you know, and it happens, you know, at, at times that there's a lot of debt for some of these individuals who are contemplating divorce. What what should we just be thinking about when, when we see something like that? Okay, so what you're talking about is kind of the flip side. So it's when you're proactively thinking that bankruptcy may, may resolve a situation. And I think usually in those situations, it's where I see couples that are more debt heavy than asset heavy. And I think in, in general, the perspective that I get from family law attorneys is sometimes it just makes things easier to clean up that debt before you try to apportion out anything else. So I'm going to do the same kind of assessment that you just talked about. Look at financials, look at assets, look at income and figure out, would it be feasible to, to take this potentially divorcing couple and file them together to deal with the debt? And generally, whether it is feasible or not, it is not solely a calculation based upon their income and assets, but also what they qualify for. Because, um, you know, bankruptcy and, and a simplified matter comes down to two different types, liquidation 
or reorganization. And liquidation is a fairly quick process, three, four months. And there's not a lot of joint action other than the initial filing that these spouses that are potentially divorcing have to do together. So that's more feasible. But the reorganization cases are longer term. They could be three, five years. And sometimes if if that's all the numbers qualify people for and they're getting a divorce, you know, it's it's a time to to think about, yeah, they could certainly look at bankruptcy, but they really need to do so with separate counsel because they might qualify for different types of bankruptcy if they look at it separated. And just a quick primer, just, you know, not I think we probably need to be reminded every single time types of individual bankruptcies. What, what, what are they? And just a quick. Sure. So, like I said, there's the, the, the liquidation versus the reorganization. So liquidation uh, for individuals, um, actually liquidation for corporations, too, is Chapter 7. And so in Chapter 7, eff- effectively what happens is the debtors freeze their assets um, and their debts at the moment that they file for bankruptcy. And it's it's just a determination of what assets do they have beyond the exemptions they're allowed that must be used to pay claims. So it's a very stagnant determination based on any assets that are above that, that uh, exemption. The trustee will sell the assets, pay whatever there is to, to the debts, and then the debtor generally gets a discharge of, of most kind of pre-bankruptcy debts. The other chapters that we're generally looking at are for individuals are chapter 11s, 12s, and 13s. And they're all some type of reorganization. 11 is for, for really high asset, high debt individuals. 12 is for farmers or fishermen. 13 is just for the, the general consumer. And in these reorganizations, assets are not sold. And basically, it, it's allowing the debtor an opportunity to restructure the debt and pay it. And in most cases, only pay part of it, not pay all of it. And this payment is through the uh, post-filing income. And so at the end of the day, at the end of this three, five-year plan, a debtor generally gets a discharge of most of that pre-filing debt that they've only paid part part of instead of all of. So those are essentially the two categories, liquidation versus reorganization. And it's just whether your assets are sold or whether you're making payments over time. Got it. Now, getting to some of the now litigation aspects, Aaron, I know you've litigated different components of this. What are some of the things that, I don't know, that Tracy, you think could clarify or that that you've seen in, in, in litigation with family law and bankruptcy? Well, I had a question about something you said early on in one of your statements about transfers between spouses. And I was curious as to whether you see examples where rather than filing jointly, Anthony may bring in a case and he may see people that might be ripe for bankruptcy, but they'd try to do a strategic transfer of debt so that only one party is actually filing for the bankruptcy. Can you talk a little bit about whether you see those types of strategic bankruptcies and whether there is a look back period that might apply to asset and liability transfers that the bankruptcy court might examine in those situations. I don't recall saying anything that's in that that lane, so I'm going to try to remember every part of the question that you just said. So as far as transferring of debts, I guess the question is, can you really transfer a debt? Uh, spouses can contract amongst each other that they're going to transfer the debt, but can you really take away the, li- the liability of the one spouse from the debt. So I, I don't know if what you're trying to say is to, to set it up in a marital settlement agreement that one spouse takes 
all the obligation on and then that spouse files bankruptcy. I, I don't see that because legally that doesn't doesn't have the conclusion that you're looking for because the lender can still go after the spouse who gave away the debt to the the bankrupt spouse. And and so that generally does not work. But that's the issue is instead of taking all this time to negotiate who's going to handle the debts, if it's something that they can qualify to, to file bankruptcy together, get rid of the debts, then you don't have to worry about that apportionment. So I, I am not sure if what what I was talking about is if, if I see a, a couple come in and I look at their income and based on their income, they don't qualify for the liquidation. They have to do a reorganization. That reorganization doesn't necessarily, it's not appropriate in my mind to do that for that couple that's divorcing because there's other obligations over this whole period of three to five years. And they're not going to be in agreement three years from now on doing what they're supposed to do. And so it can create conflicts and it can create, you know, them needing to get substitute counsel and pay additional fees. And so from the beginning, if it looks like it's going to be a reorganization, I say, I, I, I can't represent you both. I can refer somebody out. I can refer you both out to new people if I've gone in depth in the analysis. But that's what I meant as far as like transferring the case out because you can't really, you can't do that and not have a conflict. Then the reason I said that is, so, you know, say, you have, especially where the wages aren't equal between the spouses. If you have one come in, one spouse that makes a lot of money, and based on the calculations, that's going to put them over. They have to do a reorganization, but the other spouse is a stay-at-home mom, and all her income is just going to be uh, support, then you know she might qualify on her own for the liquidation. So if you separate those two, then they can each do a bankruptcy. They can each get rid of the underlying debt so you don't have to apportion it. It's just she may qualify to not pay any back and he may have to pay part of it back. So I don't know if that goes to, to what you're asking, but that's what I was trying to say. No, I think that think that's helpful. And I think that makes sense because I think for family law practitioners, it's hard to understand what the what the ground rules are. And you may have uh, divorce situations where people want to collaborate and try to find the best way out of, you know, a high debt situation. So I think it's good for us to hear, you know, what the rules permit, what, you know, what can be done and can't be done because divorce settlements sometimes are collaborative and that people are both trading things and, and, and taking the stay at home mom is able to, uh, to have some advantages, you know, and, and things that they can claim relative to the higher income individual, things like that. So that's all helpful to hear. And, sure. and one other thing I did want you to, to touch on before we we go too much deeper into some of the some of the you know issues of dischargeability and, and things like that. As you, as you mentioned in the reorganization about post filing income, and can you talk a little bit about how you know how the bankruptcy court views obligations like spousal support or alimony that the person filing for bankruptcy may have to file? Do they take that into consideration as relative to their available income that they're earning? Sure, but before I even move on to that question, I want to go back uh, to one more thing about your previous question as far as transfers go. So I want to talk about transfers of property pre-bankruptcy and the marital context. So the answer to that question is whether the court will look back and how long they'll look back. Um, it 
it's under the uh, Fraudulent Transfers Act, both the federal and the state. So generally on your documentation, you have to report any transfers that were made to an insider, which a a spouse would be, uh, in the year before filing bankruptcy. The federal fraudulent transfer section allows a look back for two years. And then, of course, the state for four. So transfers between spouses in the context of a divorce can be examined by trustees, and they are, but I think they're given a lot more leeway. And basically, the trustee just has to see that there was some kind of exchange, some some kind of relative exchange. So if you're trying to plan, plan for a bankruptcy and say, I'm going to give my spouse all my property and I'm not taking anything so I can file bankruptcy and get rid of everything. Thing. You know, a trustee may look back and look at those transfers and, and try to get the court to, to um, turn them over for being unreasonable. So um, that's one thing I, I did want to touch on in your other comment. And what was the current question? The current question was, was just to talk a little bit about when someone is in a reorganization, if the, if the bankruptcy court's going to take into consideration as their available income, any, any obligations they might have from a support standpoint. So as their income, yes, you have to report your income in the form of alimony or support, although there's pretty generous deductions so that that doesn't go into your calculation if it's child support particularly of what you have disposable income wise on the other hand is whether it is a allowed deduction if you pay the support absolutely there's generally no question so i think what we can learn here from a specific family law practitioner that doesn't commit a large part of their practice to bankruptcy is that when a prospective client comes in that has heavier debt load, possibly heavier debt load that you consult with, you you advise your client to speak with an attorney that has that experience to be able to work through it. Getting through and and getting into some of the deeper stuff here, Aaron, I'll even let you kind of direct some of these conversations just because I know you have the experience with it. Some of the more complicated issues here with jurisdiction and support orders. Aaron, lead us here if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, well, I think I think maybe the, the maybe we start from the beginning. That is jurisdiction, and, and you can tell us a little bit about uh, the jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court, but also how that fits with any jurisdiction that the family court or the or the court of common pleas uh, may have with the bankruptcy action. Sure. So I know you mentioned talking at some point about discharge, what we'll do. And that's generally where you see the issues about jurisdiction as far as bankruptcy and family law is the ultimate determination if something is dischargeable in bankruptcy. And, you know, the law changed back in 2005 significantly with the passage of the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention Consumer Protection Act, the mouthful that we call BAPSIPA. And Prior to that change, there always had to be some determination in bankruptcy court whether there was a domestic support order or a property settlement. And so something always had to be done in bankruptcy court. This was an exclusive jurisdiction that Congress gave to district courts who then gave it to bankruptcy court prior to 2005. And and it was specifically because in every bankruptcy case, there had to be a determination if if the debtor said this was not support, this was a property settlement, there 
there had to be a determination in bankruptcy that the debtor did not have the ability to pay that debt and that the benefit for the debtor to discharge it outweighed the detriment or the consequences to the other party. But at the end of the day, when they were redrafting the bankruptcy code in 2005, Congress decided they didn't like that provision and they removed it. And so because they removed this specific conferring of exclusive jurisdiction, Title 28 of the code 13, uh, section 1334B in particular says that if there isn't this exclusive jurisdiction that's granted, then there's concurrent jurisdiction. So right now on the issue of whether a debt is domestic support or is property settlement is a concurrent jurisdiction between federal and state court. And so what that means on the whole is if there's a bankruptcy involved, unless you absolutely agree that it's a chapter 13 and what you're potentially giving up on is a property settlement, unless you agree and say there's no way we could ever classify that as a domestic support obligation. Otherwise, marital debts are always accepted from discharge under 523A16. So it means there's not a determination that has to be made in bankruptcy court. It does not need to become an issue unless somebody makes it one. So that the non-debtor spouse doesn't have to do anything to protect their claim from discharge. And conversely, if a debtor wants to prove now this is a property settlement and I'm not going to owe it, they either have to actively file an adversary action in bankruptcy court to get that determination or both parties come out at the end of that bankruptcy case with the arguments preserved. There's not a determination. And so then at the end of the day, if that debtor is in the future going to say this was discharged, to get that actual determination, you have two options. You go back in and reopen the bankruptcy and request that they consider whether that debt is dischargeable or because of this now concurrent jurisdiction, go back to state court and have it determined there. And that's a pretty big issue. And that that came out of the Pennsylvania Superior Court um, back in 2020. There was a case, Hanrahan versus Ketch, that was really the seminal review in that case, because in that case, the trial court kept saying, no, 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 we can't speak to bankruptcy discharge. That's exclusively in the bankruptcy court's purview. And they kept trying to kick it down the road. And Superior Court said, no, this the laws changed, the, the federal laws changed, and, and it's no longer required to be looked at by the bankruptcy court. So we can look at it too. So it's almost you can almost make a you know a, a choice of venue if you want to on behalf of, of the, the marital client. And and that choice of uh, the choice of venue, again, I, I would think most family law practitioners would feel more comfortable you know, in the county courts of Pennsylvania, as opposed to federal court, is there any kind of consideration on that? As a family law practitioner, you'd say, well, yeah, I feel more comfortable. And if I could handle this, I, you know, I do. But then again, we want the outcome for our client, really. I mean, whether it's someone, Tracy, like you, that, litig- you know, handles, you know, and litigates in the bankruptcy courts mm-hmm. or something like us, is there a consideration there? Or just, I guess, both judges will be applying the law. So it 
They are. I I don't know. I have a personal opinion about that. I mean, obviously, I think a a state court judge that typically does marital actions and and particularly if it's one you have a history with in that case is going to have their finger more on what the equities are. And the bankruptcy judge is a toss up because, first of all, they can choose whether they want to decide it or not. And that could change from one day to another. One day they're, they're too busy. They don't want to deal with this kind of state law issue. They'll kick it back to state court. Uh, the next day, you know, they don't want you to tell them that, that they're not the right one to make those decisions and they want to make them. So I, I don't know. I, I think if it was me, I, I'd want to take it back to state court. But maybe if you have a state court judge that you feel like has has given you some trouble, you want to bring it up during the bankruptcy. It's, it's really your choice at that point in time, unless the debtor brings the action himself in the bankruptcy to say, hey, bankruptcy judge, find this to be non-dischargeable, then then you have to address it. And if the bankruptcy court judge won't kick it back down, then that's where you've got to argue it. So we t- talked about, you know, jur- jurisdiction on on these, you know, particular issues. You know, another thing family law practitioners that, that we get concerned about is entering in, you know, advising our clients regarding entering into agreements that we're worried about getting, you know, the other side fulfilling the obligations of, of a marital settlement agreement. And I believe the real fear is, you know, you sign a, a marital settlement agreement, or I know different counties call them different things, postnuptial agreements and, and what have you. But if there is an agreement that solely says spouse A will pay to spouse B, as equitable distribution per year for the next seven years. So $700,000 obligation, $100,000 a year, and that's all it says, period. Right there, equitable distribution owed from spouse A to spouse B, and that's all it says. Spouse A then encounters financial troubles and two years into the agreement files for bankruptcy. What's the concern there for my client who I advised to get $700,000? So I think that kind of puts us back to what we just finished talking about. So if your agreement says equitable distribution, more than likely the debtor is going to argue that that's dischargeable if they do a certain type of bankruptcy because discharge is limited. But if it's a, a reorganization chapter 13 case, they can argue that it is dischargeable. So then the question becomes, is it? And how do you get this determination or how do you fight against it? So that's where you kind of pick where, where you're going to proceed with the argument. And so we talked about before, there's a test. There's a test that the court goes through if it goes through bankruptcy court. And so how can you prepare to address that? And part of the way that you can prepare to address that is when you're putting the agreement together to, to begin with. If you can try to add some of this into the agreement or uh, you can, to help bolster the argument or, you know, have a decree fashioned in such a way that it clarifies whether something is is set up in a way that it could be support. I, I'll take a minute here to go through the factors that the bankruptcy court looks at. And then I'll kind of explain there's in particular three cases that are are pretty well cited where it shows you, even though something is specifically not labeled DSO, specifically may say that it is a property settlement, 
the court still determines that it would be a DSO or domestic support obligation. The non-exclusive factors, um, there's 10 of them that the bankruptcy court kind of laid out that it looks at to determine whether a debt is for support or in the nature of division of assets. So the first is the intention of either the parties or the court for the obligation to be support. So if there's something in there that says this is intended to be, and that kind of follows up with the second one, which is the label. So the bankruptcy court is very specific in that it won't accept labels, but the label itself is evidence of the intent. So you do want to try to label things to as support for your client as best you can. But if you have to say equitable distribution, not necessarily a problem if you can show the intent was really to have it be in place of support. And so the way to do that is in these documents, try to lay out the, the relative financial resources and earning power of the parties or how other obligations in the order are characterized. Also, the court really cares about whether the non-debtor spouse has custody of minor children, whether the obligation is to be paid periodically, like your example, or in a lump sum. Also, whether the obligation is expressly subject to modification. So if there's something in there that says, hey, this obligation may change if the party's relative earning power has changed or some other reason for the change whether the obligation will terminate upon the non-debtor's remarriage is another big indication. How the parties have treated the obligation for tax purposes. So that's a big one. If something's really support, but you classify it as not support so that they don't have to pay tax obligations on it. I think that's less of an issue now because effective January 1, 2019, alimony and spousal support are not taxable to the recipient. Okay. So th that was a, a tool that family law practitioners had prior to January 1, 2019, was to use, you know, using that income change from one spouse to the other. Uh, mm -hmm. You'd call something alimony, so it'd be taxable to the spouse that had lower income, and it'd be deductible by the spouse with higher income. In fact, right. January 1, 2019, no longer an issue. So all spousal support obligations and alimony obligations that go into place after January 1, 2019 are non-taxable to the recipient. It, you just can't do it. Okay. So, but to the extent that there's a mar marital settlement agreement that hasn't been fully commenced, that may become an issue right. in the future. That's a way right. to argue in, in specific uh, terms that these older agreements Right, right, were right. an indication that it was really domestic support obligation. So, okay, that I, I, I was unaware of that change, but, but yeah, it can still be used for older cases. And then lastly, whether the obligation is expressly enforceable by contempt. Um, that's something the court looks at to determine if it really is a support obligation or marital settlement. So, as I said, I'm going to go through just a quick couple cases um, that kind of demonstrate the applicability of these factors. And the first is a, a very often cited bankruptcy case. I, I think every opinion that I've read, uh, even non-marital opinions, are, but it's a very important Third Circuit case in bankruptcy. It's called In Re Giannakis, and it was uh, from the Third Circuit in 1990. And In Re Giannakis states that whether an obligation is in the nature of support so as to be non-dischargeable really depends on the intent of the parties, of course, at the time of the agreement. But it's says that can be determined by examining three indicators. Uh, first, the language of the agreement uh, and the context of the circumstances that surrounded it. Second, the financial circumstances at the time of the agreement. 
And third, uh, the function served by that obligation at the time of divorce or settlement. And so what was really interesting in Giannakis here, the debt, the underlying debt that the debtor was supposed to be paying was the payment of the, the entire second mortgage that was on the house. And even though it was classified to be a property settlement, it was found to be a domestic support obligation um, based upon the following facts, that the non-debtor spouse had custody of the kids and at different times was either not employed at all or employed in less highly paying jobs than the spouse. And so the court said that sheds the light on the nature of the obligation as support and that it really served to maintain the, the daily necessities, the, the, in this case, the second mortgage. And so it really was in the nature of support, even though it was labeled differently. So, I mean, it's kind of going along with your example. It's a pretty large lump sum of money that was supposed to be paid, and it was for a mortgage, though. And so that was determined to be support. I don't know if you guys have any questions about that. Otherwise, I can move on to, yeah, to the no, next No, I mean, it, it, it is fascinating, however, that y- y- you are correct, is that, you know, I, I would think from a family law practitioners, if a party agrees simply to be responsible for a debt, to me, that is just clearly equitable distribution. That is a division of an asset or a debt in an agreement. And I wouldn't think that would be in the nature of a support obligation, but that it's helpful to know that even if it is qualified as a division of asset or a debt in an agreement, there's based upon that case, a good argument that you could, again, protect that obligation for the client that's receiving the benefit. Yeah. And here, essentially, it was because it was providing the roof over the kid's heads, I guess, and the court said, so really right. it's in the nature of support. But there's other examples. So there's also case uh, Forelli versus Forelli, which was in the Western District of Pennsylvania in 2006. And in that court, the federal court also said that a state court's characterization of a obligation as distribution of property wasn't dispositive. Um, In that case, there was a disparity in financial circumstances. The wife was a previous stay-at-home mother and the debtor operated a business with some steady income and showed that the state court really intended an award of 65% of marital property to be a means for for the the wife to support and maintain herself. So even though it really was a, a percentage of Uh, marital property as opposed to regular monthly cash payments. In that case, it was meant to be support uh, just because of her circumstances. So that's a it's another good example of, of where the label didn't really matter. And then lastly, there's an in Ray Tyndale out of Delaware bankruptcy court in 2007. And there, there was an obligation to pay $500 weekly payments in accord with the separation agreement. And there was express language in that agreement that the payments were not intended as alimony. But the ex-wife there testified that under that agreement, the language was solely to avoid payment of taxes. And because of that, uh, the, the bankruptcy court determined they were domestic support obligations, um, that it was really just, you know, the language was only used for for tax planning purposes. So like you said, I understand it certainly doesn't uh, come into play in newer agreements, but but that's an example there. So I think, you know, basically it's saying the fact that the labels say one thing, the fact that maybe even it was intended on its face 
to be a property settlement, if you can come up with a, a creative argument as why it really provides for support, then it's worth arguing to, to preserve it. But even more so, I think, is it provides a reason why you should try to build in these factors when you're either coming together with your agreement or, or the decree uh, to try to get as many of them inserted in there. Because, you know, I guess what I found in my reading is that unless a bankruptcy is filed um, while the divorce case is already pending, state courts really don't seem to decide, and you would know better than I, but they don't seem to decide the question of if something is supporter property settlement. It's really what you put together well, and they yeah. just approve. Yeah. And even with respect to what the, the trial court does under the Pennsylvania Divorce Code for, for remedies, I mean, generally it's broken down into, there are some other categories, but often it's broken down into three remedies. It's alimony, what's the nature of the alimony obligation, equitable distribution, which is the division of assets and debts, and then attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. Attorney's fees are going to be awarded. And those are the three categories. But I, I understand what you're saying is domestic support obligation is broader than what we think of in a traditional sense as correct. Support. Yeah. And if they're, I Which mean, I think, I, it's I, fair. I think it's fair. I, I, that, I mean, to me, that makes sense yeah. that it's broader than what we know as traditional support. And I think you are right. I think there are cases and Aaron, I know you, you've probably seen them as well, where a court says, well, you know, we're going to award less alimony because we're going to give a spouse a, a higher percentage of the marital assets. And you're going to rely on that higher percentage of the marital assets to meet your needs as opposed to an alimony obligation, which can happen regularly. I mean, Aaron, in, in your experience, I, I bet you've seen that as well. Well, yeah. And don't forget that alimony is the secondary relief to equitable distribution. So you're going to divide that marital estate first before you even make a consideration as to whether there's alimony present in the case. So consequently, you may not get to that point in, in some in some cases. But I guess what I'm saying is that if you are, if it comes down to that point where there has to be a decision that there's going to be less alimony only to offset this, try and try to get as much of that into the the agreement, the court order, whatever as you can, because then that can uh, be that can give a, a any of that determination can give a preclusive effect to the issue if you do have to take it before the bankruptcy court. And, and isn't that to Anthony's point? Some of the case law that you cited that because of the broad interpretation of what is a spousal support order, maybe it's a portion of all or a portion of your interest in the marital estate. Maybe it may be designed because it has income generating assets or other elements to it, which is effectively a person's support. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Tracy, look, I, this is really valuable information regarding bankruptcy. Anything else that you think we, you know, family law practitioners and and things that we need to consider probably coming to a, someone who's well-versed in bankruptcy like yourself that, that we might run into? Anything else? I think probably going at it a little backwards, but I, I think it's important to mention in this context of our discussion is what is discharged. Because you don't necessarily even have to come to the all these issues if it's not a sp specific type of case. So what I mean by that is this. Uh, Section 523 of the Bankruptcy Code lists the types of debts that may be accepted for 
for discharge, okay? So debts for alimony maintenance support, these, these domestic support obligations or DSOs of the bankruptcy code defines them, are non-dischargeable in every kind of case. So there's no question that if it is a domestic support obligation in a 7, in a, an 11, in a 12, in a 13, they're always non-dischargeable. But under that uh, BABSIPA from 2005 that I told you about, there's this exception uh, for property settlement obligations, but it's very limited. So it is dischargeable only upon the completion of a Chapter 13 case. So you don't have even this issue that we have to get to what is a DSO versus property settlement in a Chapter 11 for, for high asset, high debt individuals or for a chapter 12 farmers fishermen and even cases that are, are a hardship chapter 13 discharge so somebody who starts a chapter 13 can't finish it and they petition for an early closure it does not get rid of the property settlement obligation so it's only a chapter 13 and, and so what that means is you have to be very aware first of all what's being filed but also it's where you want to get involved in and and have a bankruptcy professional maybe analyze if it's one of these cases where somebody's trying to to play the system and you can force them into another chapter that provides automatic protection. So like one of the biggest things is in a chapter 13, especially people who have businesses and co-signed business debt, they may have significant debts and there's limits uh, debt limits on who qualifies for a chapter 13 and people squeeze through and, and file a chapter 13 anyway because generally the, the trustee or the court won't raise issues uh, unless a creditor raises that issue so sometimes if I'm representing a marital client I'm going to look and see you know is this somebody whose debts are higher that I can force into chapter 11 because then we don't have this issue then they can't get rid of any of this so I, I think that's important just to know that there's very limited discharge and so you've, you've got to know when that's a potential that's what you really got to look at got it tracy well thank you for joining us here today again very enlightening and really issue spotting for family law attorneys and recognizing things that we need to think about with our clients and talk with bankruptcy professionals like yourself you know when these things come up so thank you again and to everyone else out there thank you for listening and thank you for joining us here at the all in the family podcast thanks for having me Law in the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.